0: You're listening to Go with Jamarly Martin. We have a go-hard or go-home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We have developer and investor Baron Channer, the founder and CEO of Woodwater Investments, a holding company of technology and real estate. How's it going, Baron? Going well.
1: Thanks for having me, Jamarly. Tell us a little yeah. bit
0: about your story, in particular, you know, your Jamaican roots mm-hmm. and your path to getting into real estate
1: first. Sure. Well, I was born in Jamaica, lived there until roughly the age of 8, 9 years old. My mother told me one day we were moving to the US and it was I remember it was 2 weeks away. And so I came to the US the middle of 4th grade. Uh, and and uh, you know, moved to Miami specifically in the North Miami area and and grew up in an area that was transitioning. So it was it was clear that you know, we were the wave of immigrants moving into this particular area. So funny story, for a the latter half of fourth grade and a portion of fifth grade, I was actually placed in English for speakers of other languages, which was amusing for, for people who know because Jamaica Jamaicans speak English, and I kept saying to the lady, lady, I speak English, and she kept applauding as if I were learning English. So they, they, they were becoming acclimated to, to, you know, to immigrants. Went on from there, went through the public school system, Miami-Dade, and just learned very early on. You know, grew up the child of a single parent and as an immigrant, and in my case, uh, you know, first generation immigrant. it was very obvious to me in the U.S. that the way to, I did not have the benefit of a sort of social support structure that was going to help me succeed and so i latched on very quickly to my path forward was going to be competition of some sort initially it was it was athletic competitions so i was a very athletic young person into all sorts of sports and then ultimately i drifted to academic competition which was really revisiting my roots in jamaica which has a very competitive education system so it's sort of upper out and you know very quickly if you can't you know, be one of the top students in a class, eventually you're going to be filtered out of the system and filtered down a pathway that's not going to lead you to success as an adult. So I picked that, lost that for a couple of years in the U.S. while I focused on athletics, but picked that back up probably around 10th grade because someone told me colleges started to pay attention to you in ninth grade. And I figured, wow, I'd already lost a year. So let me catch up with my academics and and really button down and had the great fortune performing well, didn't have particularly strong, decent, but not particularly strong academic grades, but my tests were always well above the norm. So I had the great privilege in those days you had, uh, you know, you still had affirmative action, not, not shy to say it benefited from what I believe to be an affirmative action scholarship to go to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which happens to be the oldest engineering school in the U.S., And decided to do engineering simply because math and science had always been my saving grace, right?
0: Isn't that the MO of a lot of folks from the Caribbean? Yeah. Uh, In terms of that I've met, they're they're, they're, they're relatively stronger uh, at math and science. What is that about?
1: Well, I think it has to do with the educational system that we're brought up in. So it's a challenge-based system that's highly competitive. So it's less about you growing your talent in the humanities and more about you being able to perform strongly on tests relative to your peers. So those things tend to be right or wrong answers, calculation based. And so you develop that sort of acumen. Also in in you know in the culture, the level of entrepreneurship and the capital for entrepreneurs doesn't exist you know, as supple as it does in the US culture. So what you find is most really talented people drift towards professions, and the professions are lawyer, doctor, dentist, or some form of engineering. So you start off aspiring to doing things that end up requiring some technical ability because you see that profession as success. You're not thinking about being a venture capitalist at least not, not during the times that I lived in Jamaica. Yeah, so I, I, I get to college and, you know, you know, at, at that point, you know, mind you, I'm a byproduct of Miami-Dade public school system. And I remember still to this day, there is one point in the 11th grade where some statistic had come out. And the basic premise of the statistic was that this kids in the Miami-Dade public school sk- system were the worst performing kids of any major public school system in the nation now we're all silly young kids so we're all celebrating that we're the dumbest in america so i fully expected i didn't hope for it but i fully expected that if i went to rpi that i was likely to fail out of rpi and end up having to come back because i just imagined these individuals from new york and everywhere else were so much smarter than we were and so much more educated because i'd never had that kind of perspective and to my great surprise, my education had prepared me very well. So I actually graduated from there with a much higher GPA than I had in high school, while also playing on the football team, while also being leading a couple of the biggest student organizations on school. So I kind of found myself and developed the confidence. You know, I always had a, a healthy level of confidence. That's I think is almost endemic to Jamaican culture. But I found myself as an, as an American there because I realized I could compete with anyone. My peers around me were Japanese, various countries in Africa, Chinese, various European nations, and then of course, all over the US, and I was still enjoying a great amount of success relative to them. Got out of that and realized midway through it that you know, while I loved engineering, that really what appealed to me was computers and technology and the hybrid of that and business. So instead of, I had an IBM scholarship, I interned with IBM for three years actually, ultimately had the opportunity to pursue postgraduate education and still be affiliated with IBM. I had the great fortune of going to RPI, fully expected to fail. Um, I actually chose RPI because my best friend in junior high was from New York, he had moved to Miami, And as we started looking at the list, and I started figuring out salaries, I figured out that RPI was at that time the average graduate was among the top twenty highest paid on average, and and also their engineering in the United States in the United States, and so I thought. I remember the number was somewhere around $40,000. And I think my mother was making maybe $20,000. So I thought, man, I could graduate college and make twice as much as my mother. That's the place to go to. Uh, So two of my friends from Miami, we applied. All three of us got in. Two of us went. One ended up going to West Point. But while at RPI, I expected to fail out, and in part because you got to remember. At that point, I'm exposed through through athletics, so I, you know, competed particularly in wrestling against kids from all over. But academically, I'd never competed against other folks. And I remember sometime around eleventh grade, some statistic had come out.
0: Have you used some of those wrestling moves on the street?
1: <laughs> never used any of those wrestling moves on the street. Okay. Right. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Actually, I did use them to save a police officer once. So the police officer yeah. was being it looked like he was being beaten up by a really big guy. The guy had to have been 6'5", maybe close to 300 pounds. But the guy clearly was mentally impaired and not actually trying to hurt the police officer. So he was just throwing him off of him. But I figured at some point the police officer is going to shoot this guy. They're in my backyard because they had jumped the fence somehow. And I'm thinking, the last thing I need is the police officer to shoot someone in my backyard. So I go out there and I raise my hands to the officer because I, I don't need him to shoot me another black guy running up on him. Yeah. I said, officer, do you need some help? And he says, yes, please. And he's, he's winded. So I jump on the guy's back and literally just use a basic leverage move. I was shorter than the guy. And yeah. He was standing tall. Use leverage. To bring him down, and then the police officer cuffed him. You know, so yes, I.
0: Yeah, I can see a lot of people out there and um, be like, "Man, I'm not getting involved with that because I'm gonna mess around and get shot."
1: I, well, I, I was thinking that, but I said the guy is literally in my back. Someone's gonna get I shot. I Meaning,
0: you know, if, if I even try to help the police <laughs> officer, I could end up being shot. Well, that's the first by thing the I police thought. officer. That's the first
1: thing I thought. So I yeah. walked in his eyesight, put my hands up, and said, "Officer, yeah. do you, I didn't just run up to help him? That was my first inclination. I said." he's gonna shoot me or the guys coming to help him are gonna shoot me because they're gonna think yeah. I'm with the other guy beating up the police officer. Yeah. So I just put my hands up and he, and he was winded, he, and he said yes, and then I jumped in and helped him. The, the short is I fully expected to fail out of RPI um, and, you know, because I just didn't know, and the presumption in those days for me and my peers was that we were among possibly the most ignorant kids in America, not because we're inherently stupid, but we felt that our education was poorer, in part because in those days, you know, this is mid-90s, there were some statistics that had come out that essentially ranked Miami-Dade public schools among the bottom of the major cities in the U.S., The truth behind that is that they were comparing a lot of kids who did not speak English as their native language. They were factored into that number. And we had such a high percentage of folks migrating to the U.S. that our performance was depressed. But to us, we just thought, you know, the kids in New York, D.C., Maryland, wherever they're from, if they're not from (laughs) Miami, they have to be better than us. And I knew that I was going to a very highly ranked engineering school and just figured, there's just no way. That said, I'm an athlete. So in my perspective in life, whether it be in sports or in a fight, is I'm not running. I'll show up and you're going to have to find a way. So I just figured they're going to have to find a way to kick me out of the school. They're going to have to convince me that I'm not as smart as the rest of the kids. And to my great surprise and delight, that I actually ended up being one of the better students in the school and, and, and also applied myself because of that fear of failure. In a way that allowed me to actually get a better GPA in college. I graduated I think with a three, six, five while also being on the football team, while also being working. the president. I didn't work, but yeah. I I was a football team. I was a president of two of the major student institutions on campus and actually had a pretty healthy Why?
0: Were you privileged in a sense where you didn't have to work during college?
1: No, I I just literally, I just said, I'm going to take, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship. So I had a full scholarship, one. I was interning for IBM. Athletic,
0: academic? Academic, full
1: full academic scholarship. I ended up playing football, but I, I I never wanted a scholarship because my cousins who had gone to college on track scholarships and other scholarships, I had witnessed that they literally were discouraged from studying, in order to live up to their sports obligations, right? So I just I was never interested in that academic scholarship. Uh, so that took care took care of almost everything. At the time, I was also paying some you know some of the bills back home, but I was able to use money I was making during my internship for IBM. I was paid fairly well. I think the first my first pay was somewhere around $18, $20 an hour, working full-time for IBM, three, you know, roughly three months during the summer, which was a pretty good number for where I was coming from. So I was able to use that. And then I used credit cards as well. So I just, I just wanted to focus in on school because my, my experience had always been my mother worked three jobs. My grandmother worked God knows how many jobs you know, while she was an active adult. So everyone around me had always invested themselves fully in work, and that robbed them, even though they were highly intellectual people, robbed them of the ability to develop their mind and to start to work higher work. So from a, a young age, I developed a sort of disdain for you know manual labor. So I always said to myself, I'm not working until I can get $20 an hour. So I never worked in high school. Now that meant I didn't have as many pairs of shoes or the same kinds of jeans or T-shirt as other folks. But I just always just said, I'm here to change the game, right? When my mother was moving to the U.S., it was obvious to me by the age of probably 11 or 12 that the reason we were here was for me to get to the next level and have that benefit the family. So I always just said it's going to be academics or sports. What
0: area in Jamaica is your family from? Kingston. Kingston. You go to UPenn, Wharton uh, for business school, yeah, and then you connect with Don Peebles, a notable uh, real estate developer.
1: So, funny enough, I actually connected with Don before going to Wharton. Okay, almost didn't go as as a result of it. I was at that time. I'd been in consulting. I was active. What type of consulting? technology consulting. So I was a systems architect for Accenture initially, and then transitioned, and I was working sort of pre-dot-com meltdown, which was probably February two, 2000. I was working for you know, tech firms that were startup firms, but okay, doing systems it. architectural work. So that combined with local civic activism, I've always been just active in the community, exposed me to some fairly prominent lawyers around town. And they learned that I was going to school, learned that I had an interest in real estate. And and one of them, I think I identified Don, but I was introduced to him by the, the idea of Don, by someone who said, hey, there's a black guy in town who's developing hotels. I know you're interested in real estate. You should check it out. So I checked it out and I was impressed by what I saw and reached out to his office and scheduled to meet him. This was before going to business school. And then we just decide to continue contact with each other.
0: So, you know, he has to be worth uh, a, a lot of money at this point. He's already successful. Yeah. Why does you you kind of do you, you you're not introduced. You just send an email to his office.
1: Yeah. I just sent an email to a secretary and he responded. OK, interesting. she, she responded yeah. and said, sure. come." Did you on put your bio out there or kinda... ba- basic elements of it? You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, young African-American. I'd love to get into real estate. I've been in technology. I'm. At that point, I didn't know which school I was going to. I was considering a couple of options. I'm preparing to go to business school and intend to study real estate. Would love a moment of Mr. Peebles' time. I think I said 15 or 30 minutes. It's always, you got to stay really short so you can get in the door. and If they want you to stay there, then you'll stay. I think I stayed two hours, but initially I had a 15-minute meeting.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of Charlie Sheen in Wall Street. Yeah, uh, when he's meeting uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah, uh, he's, he's like the you never leader, ask for but... an hour.
1: You've got to ask for 15 minutes. Yeah, but there's no human possible who can have a meaningful conversation with you, and cut you off at the 15 minute mark unless you are just so busy. And, and yeah. even that you should be happy you got the 15 minutes anyway. You reach out to Don Peebles. He bites. What happens after that? We talk. You know, I, I think it's always important for folks to impress upon people your your intellect or your value to them. You don't have to do a hard pitch, but I was making it clear to him. And I wasn't looking for a job. I was really looking for more his perspective, but I was making it clear to him that one, I had a passion for it Two, I expected to be successful at real estate. We stay in contact and he, and we're trading emails maybe every couple of months. He happens to be doing some real estate in Miami. I think he was doing, starting the bath club project on Collins Avenue on the beach invited me to come to the groundbreak And for that project, I went out and just stayed in touch. Thanks everybody for listening to go. You could check me out at
0: Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest
1: information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's get back to the podcast. The Royal Palm came about, you know, and at least the, the opportunity for, for Don, and this issue about you know the cuban community there were no specific protests none of this related specifically to don but the context in which this came about Nelson Mandela is going on his world tour after he was freed he makes his way over i believe he had gone to the caribbean i, I, I think he had he had visited cuba and then on his way around he had come to he was coming to miami to visit for the cuban politicians who were in power at the time received tremendous amounts of pressure from their community to not extend a formal greeting to Nelson Mandela. Because he met with Castro. Not just because he's met with Castro, but because he was known to have been very friendly and, and they expressed mutual admiration publicly. In the face of that, I'm not sure what they thought personally, but as politicians, they did the safe thing they felt which was just not extend formal greetings to him. So Nelson Mandela lands at the Miami International Airport. The city did not formally welcome him. Uh, Now, mind you, there are African Americans who are on the the city commission as well, and the county commission. And then the, the larger community took umbrage to this. And coming out of that, some of the leaders in the community at the time put together the idea of a boycott. Among the many things they did was a national boycott of Miami Beach. And so for probably two or three years, they, through their national networks, discouraged all African-American groups from coming to Miami Beach. And eventually...
0: What leaders were putting this together in Miami, this boycott? There are
1: a bunch of them, but the two most notable would be the two very prominent lawyers, H.T. Smith, Uh, who is is still around and and, and affiliated in practicing law and also teaching, and then Marilyn Hollifield, who is still around and uh, and, and a practicing attorney. Uh, They were surrounded by others, but they're probably the two most well-known leaders of that group, and they were of course connected at some level with the historical civic organizations, the NAACPs and the urban leagues. Not sure about the total composition of this, but they mounted a successful boycott, and Miami Beach, which had never paid attention to the amount of business they were doing with African Americans, started to realize that something was off in terms of the numbers. And then they learned that there was a boycott against that's them. The only thing that they, that's the only thing they understand. <laughs> right. You know, you, you hit
0: them in their pockets, and let's have a talk.
1: Yeah, right. Well, I think, you know, people... People, respect is often attached to something tangible, right? And the most tangible thing for respect to be attached to is money. The intangible is, I just like you, and so I respect you because I like you. Once they realized that you know what they had done was a faux pas, and that there was now this boycott, and it was hurting Miami Beach. Mind you, this is pre-modern-day South Beach, so we're not attracting a, a wave of Europeans who are coming to South Beach We're not the destination for women who are getting married. It's really a rising beach. But is it fair to say that this is the black community uniting, being
0: strong and banging back against the white Cuban community in Miami for their treatment of Mandela or their political position with Nelson Mandela? In uh, his alliance with Castro.
1: Yeah, I, I would characterize it a little bit. It's like we're banging back. I think yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it was targeted at one particular community. I think they were saying we have. Some but those agency. are the people
0: who are most agitated. Right. Other folks are not probably going to be as agitated with an alliance with uh, Castro as the diehard Cuban you know, community here in Miami.
1: Yeah. Well, I, Correct. But I think it was it was a combination. So there were people who acquiesced to that. And the my sense of what those folks were thinking was, how could it be that in a city in which black people have been an active part of it since the beginning, that we've gotten to the level where your concern about about Nelson Mandela, whether we argue they're legit or illegitimate, your concern about him translates to you being willing to offend him in such a way to not even greet him at the airport after these circumstances, the black community took that as an insult to us. Forget what, whatever you think, they took that as an insult and thought, well, you know, if, if we can be insulted in this way, if Nelson Mandela can be insulted, we're all being insulted. A
0: hero from the black community That's exactly it, that's exactly it. So yeah. they were
1: defending his honor, but then also they were recoiling on the idea that a Miami could be so dismissive of the perspectives of black people to not even be willing
0: do you think that situation with the Cubans and, and Mandela in and Miami, uh, what, what was the date of that, uh, roughly?
1: That was probably mid-80s.
0: Mid-80s. Is that comparable to recent events around Keith Ellison, uh, Tamika Mallory, uh, activists with the uh, Women's March, uh, black political leaders, activists coming you know, under attack uh, from Jake Tapper and other folks about being in pictures with uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, uh, going to Savior's Day to have dialogue with the Muslims from the Nation of Islam. Uh, do you feel like the treatment of black people in Nelson Mandela in Miami, mm-hmm. in terms of people coming in and say you shouldn't align mm-hmm. with Mandela because he's hooked up with this Castro, who's an evil person, he's murdering people. Mm-hmm. He's the worst person ever. Black people, hey, you know, Nelson Mandela is a hero. Don't try to tell us, you know, who our leaders are. Mm -hmm. Recently, uh, black politicians, uh, Democrats, black activists have, have been attacked by Jake Tapper and other folks for not condemning Minister Louis Farrakhan. Like, hey, you know, you took a picture with him, you know, 10 years ago. You know, you went to an event where he's, you know... He allegedly uh, made uh, anti-Semitic remarks. You black people shouldn't be associating with this particular leader. It sounds like, at least in in Miami, that there was a political stance where, hey, black people, you should not be embracing or Miami should not be embracing Nelson Mandela because he's aligned with someone America and the Cuban community hates Fidel Castro.
1: There's some elements of overlap. The nuance is they're different circumstances, but I do believe that in general, people who are not in power, and certainly blacks in this country, are judged by a different standard, right? And they're judged by that different standard because our power in society has often been given to us by folks who don't fully understand our circumstances and so they're judging us based on their lens so you can judge a barack obama or attempt to judge a barack obama because of what you perceive about the church that he went to right
0: folks who want uh black leaders black politicians black activists to go out there and condemn farrakhan because the establishment wants them to yep in barack obama's book he talks about how he loved reading the final call yeah, these statements are not new. From yeah, God, well, right? it,
1: it it says that you can be narrowed down to a you know myopic lens, right? You you have to fit into a specific mold. And listen, there's a legitimate reason for people to argue with folks about what they like, right? But most folks who have a relationship of mutual respect and perceive each other to have equal stature, recognize that we won't agree on everything. There's certain things that are egregious, but I don't need you to like everyone that I like. And I don't need you to hate everyone that I hate. Certainly if, and and certainly won't define you simply by your lack of willingness to agree with me on who's admirable versus who's despicable.
0: And where, where does this request to condemn other black leaders from uh, the the political establishment, how far do you go with this? For example, do I stop going to black churches or aligning with black churches who have a negative view of same-sex marriage? Do I do I have to cut off that segment of the black community that has very strong beliefs about that?
1: Well, you know, people ask that question, but I always say it's about equity, right? If you have to do that, then murder most of the history of the Catholic Church was condemning those very same people. Maybe in different language, but they were condemning the same people, right? And that that filtered over into our culture. I believe that if you respect someone, you should give them the benefit of explaining their perspectives on things that you disagree with them on, and you should do the same. And you should appreciate that, you know, the folks that you like and admire They're not simplistic people. There are complexities to who they are and what they are. Most people don't appreciate... Whatever you think about the relationship between Mr. Mandela and Castro, getting back to the original topic, it's reasonable to understand why a Nelson Mandela, who was a freedom fighter in South Africa, could see Castro, who was lending troops to his cause, as someone who is... A friend or someone to be respected because he doesn't share the horrors of the Cuban American community. I'm not sure. And and if he knew that, he probably would have been sympathetic to their or at least empathetic to their plight, but still had a certain perspective. That's a, a positive. So there's a yin and a yang. Yeah. Right. And so I think you know I think that the challenge for the black community in general and folks are going to always judge you the challenge for us is to put ourselves in a position where our power as individuals and as a community is not born in having to have a pass or have acceptance from people who don't fully understand our circumstances right so when you have power within your community you know you know to their great credit the folks who are in the Jewish community do not have to defend themselves ad nauseum for their stance on people in Israel, while others may oppose those individuals.
0: Should Jews right should Jews be pressured to condemn Netanyahu, for example? You know, he's kicking uh, African uh, immigrants uh, out of Israel. Uh, and the policies of Israel in terms of, you know, just the other day, I believe 19 Palestinian protesters were killed and murdered. Would you feel comfortable going to uh, Jewish folks and say, hey, why aren't you condemning Netanyahu? Uh, his, you know, his government just killed 19 innocent Palestinians. No, I, I don't. I, I don't have a record of, well, first, we don't have a lot of power, but I don't remember any kind of pressure uh, put on white elites to condemn the actions of their brethren. That's your brother over there. That doesn't necessarily reflect uh, your your beliefs uh, in totality.
1: Yeah, I, I think it would be silly to go to any of my Jewish friends and ask them to condemn uh, Netanyahu or, or or anybody else with whom they have a relationship framed based on a bond that I don't have. Right Now, in conversation, if I disagree with them about factual things I may ask them to enlighten me but they have a relationship and an agency as it relates to Jewish culture that I do not have so why would I ask them to condemn someone whom is viewed in that culture by a high percentage I don't know if it's if it's everyone but a high percentage of people as someone who's been a defender of the culture for a very long time even if I believe that the person has some flaws right now we can talk about the flaws but it's like anybody right if you look at a Malcolm X right some people see flaws some people see strength I would say on on the net net Malcolm X was a very significant and positive contributor to the advancement of black culture so in that sense I respect him tremendously and it'd be silly for anyone to ask me to reject him on the basis of something that they may disagree with.
0: When Barack Obama stepped back from Reverend Wright, yeah. you know, the, the establishment is going to Barack Obama and say, you need to condemn this, you're your pastor. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, Obama's a pastor, as you know, 20 years. He baptizes uh, the daughters. Mm-hmm. They're clicked up for over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, but now that the media is pressuring this black leader, uh, aspiring president, mm mm-hmm they kind of force his hand to condemn Reverend Wright, Farrakhan. Yep. If you were Barack Obama's, I guess, friend, mm-hmm. not like advisor or anything, yeah. how would you have advised him on, hey, you know, if you want the presidency, yeah. do you off your pastor publicly?
1: Yeah, I would probably have told him to do something very close to what he did on the following principle, right? I don't know what your, your upbringing was, but... Most of us have within our family someone who is objectionable to most of the other, most of the professional people we're around, most of the academic people that we're around. And you know certain things, that cousin can't come to that event. It's not that you don't love your cousin, you're gonna see him next week and you're gonna see him at the barbecue. But he was running to be the president of all of America. And the reality is, most of America is not black. And at that point, a tremendous segment of America was pressuring him to make a decision. Do you want to be the popular black guy or do you want to be the president of the United States of America? If you look at the way he did it, you know, unfortunately, the media, I thought it was amplified. But the way that he dealt with it, to me, was not a, was not a very, in a very insulting way. He tried to shake himself away from it, but he didn't completely disavow The guy, he just. Well, Reverend Wright would
0: say something different. Right. Uh, He was offended
1: personally. So I I would would expect him to.
0: From his perspective, Obama's just being a conventional politician. You got to kind of pick and choose your battles. And uh, yeah, he picked his
1: because he want Yeah. And because he of who he wanted to be and and who everyone was encouraging to be. We all asked him go and run to be the president of the United States of America, which only 13, 14 percentage of people are are black. Right. So 87, 86, 87 percent of the people have a different perspective. And now you're being asked to choose between a core black issue, a fiery minister who, you know, they were making certain allegations or being the president of all. And I don't think he could have won the race without backing away in some shape or form. And the media jumped on it.
0: What would you say to, in my view, the Republicans got Obama right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, when I heard Obama speak, uh, you know, some of his speeches, I believe a speech in Wisconsin, he starts using, you've been bamboozled, you've been led astray. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was like on a plane where a lot of most people did not understand. Mm-hmm. But when I first heard, uh, Barack Obama, I said that this guy has really tapped into similar teachings that Malcolm X followed yeah. at, at one time or another. Yeah. And it, and you know, when I started to study Obama early on, I read his book It wasn't a shock because my intuition said that when he said that, hey, you know, I used to read the final call.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah, Yeah, yeah. it wasn't hiding.
0: I could tell in terms of his trajectory and his words that there's a part of Obama that a lot of black people do not understand, at least at that time, in terms of like, you know, 2007, 2008. And America did not understand. But he can only let so much out. And so when Republicans were skeptical in terms of Reverend Wright and, you know, his name and all this other stuff, and they had this kind of paranoia, Mm -hmm. I share a lot of Barack Obama's views from a cultural and political standpoint. I didn't have a problem, of course, with the very pro-black, more nationalistic side (laughs) of Barack Obama. uh, And I knew that he only could reveal so much. So when he's condemning Reverend Wright after saying that he loved reading the final call. When he's making speeches on the run-up to the election, and he's talking about, you've been hoodwinked, you've been led astray, you've been bamboozled, pulling from Malcolm X without calling out Malcolm X. I felt that this guy is really tapped into something that's blacker than most people think. And I believe some of the smarter Republicans, they got that about him, that he wasn't your typical Negro politician. There's a side of him that he's hiding from us. Mm -hmm. And I believe the Reverend Wright situation kind of brought that to the surface. Uh, What what do you have to say about that?
1: Well, two things On, on, on one side. I viewed him as someone who had the advantage of being the classic outsider. If you think about, and I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine this. If you think about being the mixed child, your father being from a foreign country, you growing up in Hawaii, which has relatively few people who look like you, right? And you moving to live in Asia. He has never been in an environment where he was naturally the insider. So probably his entire life he has spent observing the insiders and understanding how to navigate himself in and, and that includes his relationship with with you know quote unquote traditional african Americans right so he understands a wide swath of humanity and he packages that and so as a as a candidate as a politician he was being initially bottled into this is a black politician and that was being made to oversimplify who he is what he is and what he should believe so yes he's familiar with malcolm x and yes he's also familiar with you know with with you know buddhist philosophy and yes he's also someone who has probably listened to rock and roll and yes he knows of and and enjoyed bob marley because he's always been I, I feel like he's probably always had to be an outsider and enjoy what the insiders are doing and find his way to navigate there. And you don't get there naturally. You have to study it and understand it. Would you cut off your pastor
0: to, to run for president? The white establishment, Democratic Party is coming to you and say, look, you're not gonna be able to, we're not gonna back you on this ticket unless you condemn your pastor of uh, 20 years. Uh, this guy has really you know, helped you spiritually You guys are like family together. But if you want to make the impact that you want to make, we need you to off your pastor publicly.
1: I don't know that he off the pastor. (laughs) Would I explain myself? Yes, because if I want to be president under those circumstances, you flip the numbers, you tell me 87 percent of the people will understand Reverend Wright, then i take my chances, but if 87% of the people don't have that cultural context, and I want to be the president of those people as well, and I'm forced, I'm going to explain myself. Now, where I think things went a little bit awry, there was a a sort of back and forth. If I were, and, and, and this isn't to blame him, I understand why, but if I were Reverend Wright, I would have said, hey, he's not going anywhere. I found myself in the position of being the cousin who's not invited to go to graduation, let me just stay home and wait until he comes back home and I'll meet him there. Don't come out and and be upset publicly because now you force him to have to push back because he's in the throes of an election. I don't think at that point, and maybe he could have, but couldn't have suggested it would have been wise for him to not respond to that issue and and President Obama to not back away at that point if he wanted to win.
0: You know, I don't think this happened, but uh, I think you could have two winners out of this, where you're not being disloyal to your pastor, Mm -hmm. but you you get to where you need to go in which you believe you're going to really help the people. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I'm talking about uh, black people. So you sit down with Reverend Wright and say, hey, there's this controversy. These white elites, uh, they're saying, I'm not going to go forward until I condemn you for some of your words that you said. I do think that if I do not, I cannot move my uh, campaign forward uh, and become president. Mm -hmm. And so strategically i'm going to need to say some words but i want you to know that i'm fully behind you uh and you know i, I back you 100 percent but you get counsel from the pastor where the pastor endorses you offing him based on your strategic objectives yeah
1: that's where i thought things when i have to imagine that they're mutual friends someone tried to do that but i think at that point They both, remember, Reverend Wright has been around for a very long time. President Obama is now ascending. So they both are prideful individuals. So for Reverend Wright to be put into a position where he's now being asked to go sit in the corner had to have been a difficult thing. And I thought the way he handled that complicated the matter a little bit because he came back and now you're popping up and it's like whack-a-mole. He's... I think he allowed the moment and his justified sensitivity to what was going on to influence actions that were never going to lead to a positive outcome. President Obama was not going to apologize to him at that point publicly.
0: Yeah, at the, at the time, I actually thought that uh, Reverend Wright uh, should have understood that we have a chance, coming out of Chicago, to put a black president who's from your community into office you have to take a L. It's not about you. It's not about you individually and how you look. But strategically, we're thinking on a kind of a military strategy level, you have to take an L on this one, yeah. Reverend Wright.
1: But it's not even a military strategy. You just think back to when you were a kid and I, I was relatively poor. When my friends were dating rich young ladies and they said, hey, I'm going to go hang out with her. I didn't ask them, could I tag along? I just sat in the background. I, I waited till he acknowledged me, and I'd introduce myself as politely as I could and try to hide the fact that we're all poor as dirt because he's dating someone, and I don't know the context on which he's being judged, so let him, let him live. He's, he's still gonna be my friend. We're still gonna be hanging out in the neighborhood when he comes back from the date. So President Obama was not gonna stop being black. He was not gonna stop going to church, right? He's, he just had to be elected as president and it became inconvenient. that. But, but do you think
0: Reverend Wright represented the selfishness of, that you find within black leadership where sometimes folks don't know how to take a L for the greater cause? Where you individually may have to take a hit for the community to move forward, but, but you can't go beyond how this imp- impacts you individually.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't think he represented that, because I think our community knows how to do that, and historically we've done it, especially around, around generational issues where the elders have taken a back seat for the younger folks. Here, it's, it's a situation in which we were now reaching a different plateau, right? You actually had a chance to be the president, and everyone figures, I'm going along for the ride. And now you're telling Reverend Wright, he can't ride and he can't swear you in when it's time for you to 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 get into the White House. And he was being ejected at such a late stage. So I just think the moment was so big. The moment met the expectations and that turned into a certain level of tension. Had this been just simply I'm running for alderman in Chicago and listen, some stuff is coming up. I need you to lay low. I'm sure Reverend Wright would have just laid low, but he was thinking like your friends are always, if my friend was running to be the President of the United States of America, I'm thinking where I'm going to live, what position I'm going to be appointed to. And if he comes around and he tells me in a public way, hey, I have to separate from you, and I feel alienated after I campaigned for him, I'm going to feel a certain way. And I think Reverend Wright's his emotions caught up to him. But you know, if you look at where they are now, if you actually ask, you know, I'm I'm sure there's some resentment there, but I don't know that the level there's a level of disdain. So I think that's washed out. I'm not sure the relationship ever gets back to to where it was.
0: Let's talk about UPEN and then you ending up working uh, with Don.
1: Sure. So I I started UPEN in uh, 2002. I was actually supposed to start a year earlier than that, but at, if you recall. We were having, in those days, the the dot-com meltdown, and and I was active in supporting my mother, at least contributing to her financial circumstances, and I was concerned about leaving at the height of that downturn, so I stayed out to continue working and just basically just to, to bankroll some money so that while I was in school, I could do whatever I need to do in support of her. So started 2002. You know, by that point, I had a very good understanding of where I wanted to go in life. I knew that I wanted to be a real estate investor, developer. I knew that I wanted to be actively engaged in, in civic life, you know, not as an elected official, but as a, just a business person who is who's doing things in and around the community. And I'd already had my history with technology, so I knew that I would continue that amazing experience you know i was actually i was headed to harvard business school initially in part you know because my mother you know my mother from jamaica you know oxford you know cambridge so Uh, you got accepted to hbs i did and i was i was prepared to go there and then ultimately i decided that i wanted to focus on real estate and that was my call-in And if I was going to focus on real estate, it was just unquestioned that Wharton was the best school when you looked at it. And then you factor in the numbers, right? Harvard and Wharton are the two largest business schools around. So I thought, I'm not losing anything at all going to the best business school for real estate that happens to be one of the largest business schools that also happens to have an undergraduate and a network that is equally expansive. So I just thought this is going to be an opportunity to meet all different types of people. And you know, I you
0: heard anything about more psychopaths come out of uh, HBS than any other business. I've not, I've
1: not heard that. I've not heard that. I don't know. Is, you you who heard said heard anything that? about that. Who said that?
0: Well, obviously, they produce a lot of graduates, but yeah. a lot of fraudsters, okay. uh, criminals have gone through uh, uh, HBS. Yeah. And then the, the, the HBS uh, folks that I've met, yeah. uh, they seem to struggle with ethics.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure that, you know, I don't know that data. But I do know that for all of these schools, including Wharton, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to succeed. Because after, you, after I got into the school and I was graduating, I realized now there's actually no excuse, right? Yeah, I can say I'm, I'm a black guy and that's, that's why, but there's no excuse not to realize the highest level of success. So when you're facing that pressure and there's no excuse and reality faces you where, hey, I can make a decision to make a tremendous amount of money or not make that decision, and I end up being quote-unquote average, which nobody goes to those top-tier MBA schools with the expectation of being average. It forces, it challenges your character at times in terms of how you respond to it, and unfortunately, some people, their ethics comes into play and, and their willingness to compromise their ethics in pursuit of living up to the expectations. I think it, it's really more a story of the height of expectations that are held for the graduates of this school and, and the expectations you put on yourself meeting the frailties of the human psyche, right? Which also includes you know depression and anxiety. Some people get to a certain stage where they've not realized the success that they expected to have as a graduate of, of Wharton and other schools. And they become really anxious about what's going on in their life. And when you look at it, you're saying, hey, bro, you're making $200,000 a year. You've got a Mercedes Benz and you've got two cars. No, you're not a billionaire, but we all knew that not everyone was going to get there anyway.
0: You turn down Harvard Business School. You go to Wharton. Uh, was there a financial aid consideration?
1: No, there was not a financial aid consideration. Um, it was really about wanting to be t- two things, really. One, my pedigree up to that point had been as an engineer. So I learned best through you know understanding the formulas and doing the work. And so the style of teaching between the two schools was substantially different. Now, I don't know if one is inferior or superior, but for the way I learned, I was mature enough to know that Wharton would teach me the best for the way I learned. And two, Wharton's just the best real estate program in the U.S., maybe in the world, if you judge it based on the sheer volume of people who graduate, where they're situated in life in terms of the firms they're working for, and the level of success that they've had. And I thought, you know, if you're going to join a gang, quote-unquote, you don't join the small, weak gang, you join the large, strong gang, and I was looking to get into real estate as someone who has, you know, there's no one before me. Do you believe Trump
0: uh, hurts the brand of, of of Wharton?
1: No, no, because there are just so many people you can layer on top of that who, you know, have stellar success. And and then to the extent that some of us disagree with Trump, there are other people who agree with him. The one thing you That's not, that cannot be disagreed, is that during the 80s, he had as good of a run in real estate as anyone had. We can argue what happened after that, and I don't know all the facts, but if you go back to the 80s, and most people forget he's been around as a professional, I'm not, forget the politician stuff, but as a professional, he's been around for a very long time. Yes, he started with a leg up, but he did a tremendous amount with that leg up that others didn't do during the 80s. I'd like to believe that some of that had to do with, you know, the environment but also some of the education he received. He was a Wharton undergrad, which, you know, the, they produce some really high-quality kids. I probably wouldn't have been able to get into Wharton as an undergrad. It took me my own undergrad years to mature academically and get to the point where I was fortunate enough to attend the MBA program.
0: You graduate from Wharton. What do you do next?
1: Well, I- I- immediately I, as I graduated, I had a job with uh, the Peebles Corporation. So I went to work with Don Peebles. I was actually working with them my first year of school. At that time, I knew that I would be close to Atlantic City, which was, you know, today everywhere has gaming, but in those days it was Atlantic City and Las Vegas. And so I thought I could be useful to him in terms of introducing him to the casino gaming world because I would be an hour away away from Atlantic City. So I was actually helping out while in, in school I interned with him two thousand and three and then so I knew that I was going I almost didn't come back to the school the second year because at that point I started to think, well, I already have the job that I want starting out. Mm -hmm. But then it dawned on me that it's kind of silly for me to miss out on the overall experience of the business school and actually getting the degree, given that I only have one year left. So I went back, finished up, actually started, graduated on the Friday or the Saturday, and started working on the Monday.
0: And what was your title uh, working with Don? My
1: title then was I was a development associate. And so I, I, I made up the title. He asked me to make it up. The role was effectively to support the underwriting of deals, so the financial analysis. But the title I made, he asked me to suggest him what the title should be, and I gave him a structure that was analogous to the investment banking slash consultant world because I figured titles only matter to people who are paying attention to traditional industries, and I wanted them to appreciate that my level was comparable to someone from business school Who had just gone into investment banking?
0: Add some context of uh, the scale that Don Peebles uh, is kind of developing, his, his footprint at the time you started working with him.
1: His largest project at the time was an $85 million project, 80 some odd million dollar project, the Royal Palm. He was in the process of undergoing the bath club. And that was probably a nine figure project, about a hundred plus million dollars. So it was significant in scale. But there's an important part important lesson to this and something that you know I, I I treasure from my experience having worked with Don is he does not suffer from the perception that he is inadequate, certainly not in business, right? So his perspective is if that person can do a $500 million deal, it's all arithmetic and multiplication and division, I can do a $500 million deal. The reality of our business is that our business depends heavily on leverage, right? other people's money. Now, some of it's your own, but the the business is about bringing your skill and your ability to make money to the table, finding a good project, impressing upon other people that you're a good bet and having them bet on you in the form of either lending you money, debt, or providing you equity. And so Don's approach to a billion dollar deal, he is not afraid of a billion dollar deal. True story, at my summer internship with him, now I'm very good at at math and had always been, but the reality is how many of us actually multiply and divide with two commas, right? So you never actually do math where the number is a million or 10 million, right? So I'm doing math now where the number is tens of millions of dollars. And you find yourself questioning, well, what's 10% of 10 million? Is it actually a million? Everyone knows that 10% of 10 is one, but you never actually do math that large. And and so that that initially was daunting for me because you start to question yourself because you've never dealt with numbers that large. That's not something Don suffers from. So... To him, even when we were doing the you know hundred million dollar deal, in his mind, he was thinking as soon as I get the opportunity, I want to do a billion dollar deal. He's not thinking, let's wait ten years to get there.
0: My discussion with Baron Chen is continued in Go episode number fourteen. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamal Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.